Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hello and welcome to You're On Mute, a new podcast series conceived by BBI, the UK's first black business institute, an organization which aims to boost prospects for underprivileged black entrepreneurs by promoting equivalent access to the UK's funding structures and essential business networks. I'm your host, Lord Michael Hastings, and over the next 12 weeks, myself and my fellow hosts, June Sarpong and Bianca Miller-Cole, will be interviewing an incredible lineup of leaders, icons, and changemakers to ascertain how they balance the importance of commercial performance versus societal impact. COVID-19 and the killing of George Floyd have emphasized society's race, class, and social equality fault lines. And we'll be touching on these issues over the course of the series. As we all know, with great power comes huge responsibility. And this series looks at how those in positions of influence can use their status as a force for good. Our time together is broken down into three sections, guests sharing their favorite piece of music or soundtrack representing a memorable stage of their life. Joining me for our second episode is Professor Kevin Fenton, Public Health England's National Director for London. Among his many other roles, Professor Fenton was previously the Director of the United States National Center for Disease Control and Prevention. He joins me today to discuss his early life and inspiration, distinguished medical career and how he became an advocate for equity and equality in public health. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here with you and congratulations on this new podcast. Thank you. Well, thinking about your first piece of music, which is City of Brotherly Love by Soul Survivors. Tell me about the rhythm and the feel of it for you. So, you know, having been a child of the 70s and 80s, I have a nostalgia for wonderful soul music, but... There it was a and is a political activism and a sense of hope from black artists, black soul artists in the 70s, which um, really speak to, I think, who I am and, and what I believe in. And this first song talks about the importance of coming together and that we are more than one. We are parts of the community and um, enjoy and it, of course, as a song, it relates so clearly to part of your life in Jamaica, because the motto of Jamaica is out of many one yeah. people. Did Indeed. that affect your choice? Um, it, it probably did subliminally. Um, it's a lot of the work that I've done over the course of my career is really trying to get all parts of systems to work together, recognizing that this is a shared endeavor and any success we have depends on many people. And this song talks about the importance of welcoming people into that space of, of home, of community, of love. And that sets the scene for what we can do to achieve great things. So um, that's why this song was chosen first. Now, although you sound very Jamaican, um... You actually were not born in Jamaica. You were born in Scotland. Yeah. So my parents were actually doing their postgraduate work 
in Glasgow when I was born. Uh, my mum's a nurse and my father is a teacher. Uh, and so from them, I've developed a love both for health and for science. Uh, I spent my first two years in Glasgow before returning home to Jamaica. And I, home is Jamaica. And I uh, had the privilege of doing primary, secondary and uh, university there. So I did my medical degree there. So the accent that you hear is both um, a, a root of Jamaican, but I've been here uh, in the United Kingdom and in the US for more than half of my life. So I think it, there's an evolution that you're hearing as well. And you didn't really have time to pick up a Scottish accent, did you, uh, up until two? No, not at all, not at all, which uh, I think in retrospect wasn't a bad thing. I think I quite like <laughs> having the Jamaican lilt uh, uh, in the voice. You, you're also a man of deep and personal and strong faith. And how has your faith been an important part of your life and, and also your commitment to medicine? You know, I, I, I'm really glad you raised this because it's it's it, it has been an important part for me. And, and certainly growing up in Jamaica, we grew up in the Anglican church. Um, when I was in my mid-teens, I became an evangelical Christian and I was part of that faith onto my early 20s. Um, I decided to move away from the church in my 20s um, and for most of my early adulthood life. But the core values of understanding your spirituality, understanding your purpose on the planet, recognizing that it's not just about you as an individual, but there are higher callings, has framed my leadership, has been able to frame the decisions that I've made through course of my career, and also frame the values that I have. So my decision to do public health, for example, is about serving. My decision to work in some of the most disadvantaged and marginalized communities speaks to that sense of social justice, which has its roots, I think, in my spirituality. So although you had a great part of your early education in Jamaica, including your medical education, you also had a scholarship that took you to Canada. Um, yes, so um, I have been blessed, right, in, in being able to, um, uh, I loved medical school, and, and I think, although I was always a good student, I think in medical school, I really came into understanding how to learn my passion for knowledge, and my passion for just excelling in the, the, the topics that I was studying. And so I, uh, post-medical school, I applied for a number of scholarships. I wanted to return to the UK to do my uh, postgraduate studies because I was born here and I wanted to be in Western Europe. And I was really fortunate to, at that time, after medical school and having worked in Jamaica for a couple of years, to receive both a Jamaican scholarship to study abroad, to do my specialization, as well as a full scholarship from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, which, as you may know, is one of the top public health universities in the world. And I was able to do that almost immediately after medical school. And that gave me a grounding in public health that I was then able to use to do more clinical work, but also set me on my path for the career that I had. And so, uh, again, this, this aspect of uh, my love for academia, my love for studying was also being able to be able to combine with uh, a journeys which have taken me around the world in my career. Some would say that you're, you're very highly favoured. You've, you've had a lot of opportunity to develop your medical expertise, your clinical expertise, 
uh, to study, to get scholarships. And um, Would you just say that was luck or do you feel that you have been particularly blessed? Well, you know, I think I'm honest enough to recognize the privilege that I have. Um, you know, my father was a teacher and he really is a teacher and he instilled in me the value of learning and a passion for education. And, and my funniest stories of my dad is we'd always come home from school and we do our homework and he says, OK, and here's the homework that I've set for you. Uh, and so having that level of interest in our education means that we grew up understanding that and realizing that not everybody had that support. And for my mother, the passion, because she's a nurse, of serving, she'd take us to the hospital, we spend days just hanging out with her on the wards and seeing and meeting doctors, meant that that exposure to the clinical environment was also deeply ingrained as well. So I recognize that privilege, but I also recognize the hard work that it's taken to get here and the risks that I've taken to get here, you know, whether it's leaving home at 26 to come to London on my own to study in London, whether it was making a choice to do public health when everybody else, all my mentors were saying, actually, you should be doing clinical medicine. You're so good. This is what you should be doing. But I was following my heart and what I thought at that time was my mission. Um, and to navigate as a foreign doctor coming and working in the you know, powerful university systems in London and having to make my way through that. I think it's been a combination of recognizing the gifts and blessings, but also recognizing the importance of hard work and mentors along the way who've been phenomenal in helping me as well. We're gonna talk about two of your mentors in a minute, but your second uh, musical item, Love and Affection from Joan Armour Trading. Oh, we all remember Joan Armour Trading, wow. Yeah, so, uh, you know, this song is one of those songs when you hear it, it evokes memories for me of childhood. It is such a strong statement about the power of love. And all of the songs that I'm choosing today have an element of love because, in leadership, love is important. Love for your work, love for the people who are following you, love for the people who you're serving. And we don't often speak about love. We don't often speak about spirituality in our leadership. And I think that the nature of the challenges that we have ahead of us requires us to have both the emotional as well as the mental aspects of our leadership fully developed. And this song by Joan Arbitrating for me just roots me into why love is important and how that love can be manifest both beautifully in song, but in word as well. And you were very much loved by two great mentors, Peter Figueroa and Sheila Forrester, and they've been important to you. I'll just talk about both of them for us. Yeah, so they were really instrumental uh, in me you know, deciding to go into public health. Um, and, you know, let me take you back to the 80s when I was studying in medical school, you know, for any cohort of young pe person coming into medical school, your idols are the cardiologists, they're the neurologists, they're the surgeons. Um, the public health fraternity are often seen as slightly left-wing, sandal-wearing uh, people who maybe didn't make it in public health, in clinical medicine, and moved to public health. But I saw very clearly about the power of using your clinical skills to not only improve the health and well-being of one person, but of nations of the globe. And I had the benefit of being exposed to these very dynamic, very uh, switched on in terms of their values of social justice, 
but leading the island in Jamaica in doing fantastic work, whether it's in child illnesses, preventing cancer, creating uh, communities which were healthy. And I realized that through them, I was beginning to open up my eyes to a different type of medical practice. And Peter Figueroa, who was then the chief medical officer in Jamaica, provided opportunities for me to be mentored with him, to work with him, to understand it. And Sheila Forrester was really important in providing opportunities for me to do some of my first jobs in public health, to give me the real world expertise, which again provided a platform for me to get that scholarship to study in London. So both of them in Jamaica were really formative mm. in, in confirming my decision to do public, public health. Shortly after this time, since uh, when you qualified HIV, began to become the pandemic of the time. And just take us through some of your memories of that experience. So, you know, I often reflect, and, and if you've ever heard me speak about the COVID pandemic, I often say that this is the second pandemic that I've had the privilege of leading through. My first memories of the AIDS pandemic was when I was still an early teen, when the first cases were reported in 1981. And I remember then the fear, the stigma, the exclusion of people because they were developing this unknown disease. And even as a child, I remember thinking, this isn't right. And I hope that one day I'll be able to make a difference there. And then when I went into medical school and began meeting patients in Jamaica who had HIV, and at the time, the fear was so great. They were often treated in um, poor conditions, left on their own, not fed, not taken care of because people were afraid. And so when I had an opportunity to do my postgraduate work, that memory of the pandemic and the lives that were being affected by it framed and shaped some of my early decisions. So in public health, I did initial research in HIV, sexually transmitted infections. I then did for the first 10 years, my academic public health career studying HIV, working with or Black African, Black Caribbean communities, with gay men doing global HIV research. And that provided an, an excellent platform for the rest of my career. And the lessons there, I think, have lived with me throughout the course of my career. So number one, you can't solve a pandemic by testing alone. And we've seen that with COVID. Number two, you can't solve a pandemic with national edicts and dictates. You need to engage communities and meet communities where they are. And number three, no pandemic has ever been solved by any single organization. And it is in the power of collaboration, of coordination, of thinking outside the box about who you bring together on this mission that will help you to get to a different place. And so some of those core principles, I think, we've been able to use for the COVID pandemic as well. Was it easy to draw out those concerns, those interests, those engagements, particularly from, from Black men in Jamaica because of the context in which Jamaicans often reflect on these issues? Um, it was difficult. And as you know, you know, in Jamaica, issues related to sexuality and especially male homosexuality are difficult. And there's this interesting conflict because in Jamaica it's a religious country everybody goes to church and there's a conservatism within 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 the island and yet at the same time we are 
a sexual island. You listen to her music. You listen to her dance hall. You are everywhere in that 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 mixture, that conflict of of faith and sexuality creates an environment where, for conditions such as HIV, uh, the stigma, the fear, the homophobia, all of this came together into what I think was a, a difficult cocktail for the Jamaican epidemic. But this was replicated all over the world, whether you're in Uganda, the early days of the pandemic here in the United Kingdom, all that intersection between values and faith and sexuality and the honesty that the HIV epidemic needed us to have to get beyond it, I think shaped where we are today. So Jamaica is in a different place. Many Caribbean countries are now in a different place in recognizing homosexuality and, and, and moving away from the sort of punitive laws that we had in the past. And that hopefully will be a legacy of the HIV epidemic and the learning that we've been able to take along with it as well. So you've been involved in a lot of substantial studies, very long-term studies on anthropological studies on these issues, but also some of that work took you to the United States, didn't it? It did. It did. And, you know, I spent, after I came to the UK to do my postgrad work, I was here for almost 10 years. Uh, specializing in epidemiology and public health, doing my initial consultant jobs. And I had the privilege of being, even at that early stage, one of the national directors for HIV and sexually transmitted infections for England and Wales, working at the public health agency at that time. And in, nine, in 2004, an opportunity arose for me to go to the US to spend some time there. Um, and that opened doors to working with the US Public Health Agency, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And I was appointed as the chief of the syphilis elimination effort in the US. I uh, did that for a year, and then I was promoted to be one of the national directors in the US covering HIV, STDs, TB, and hepatitis. And there worked with the Bush administration and the Obama administration to lead domestic and global programs on HIV. And, and that was just a, a challenging time because again, that was in the 2000s, effective treatments for many of these conditions were present. But in the US especially, the disparities that we saw in terms of very high rates in Latino and African-American communities compared to white communities meant that there needed to be a different approach to HIV in the US. And I was privileged to be part of creating that. Maybe you could just delve a little bit into what you saw as the, the difference that particularly affected black communities, especially given that black communities had also been more strongly affected by COVID in the US as well as in the UK. Do you see the similar issues there? Uh, indeed, indeed. And, you know, while I wouldn't say that necessarily um, because of the colour of our skin, because we live in racialized society, racism, structural racism, uh, discrimination plays out in how these epidemics manifest themselves within communities. Um, in the US, when I started, we had some of the same issues that we saw here in London, in Jamaica, that we had the African-American community 
highly, uh, you know, many go to church on Sunday, very religious, very conservative, uh, uh, homosexuality not necessarily being accepted, uh, the phenomenon of people who weren't being honest about their sexuality, being in relationships, and then becoming infected because of uh, uh, illicit relationships, um, uh, injecting drug use, uh, and, and the impact that that had on the epidemic at that time. And of course, for people living in poor disadvantaged areas, the, the intersection between drug use and poverty and lack of access to services meant that you had very high rates, especially in the south of the US, but in urban centers of these infectious diseases. So the context in dealing with HIV there was one of coming back to the basics and recognizing that having an HIV test and having effective treatment was necessary, but it was not sufficient to help to reduce rates of infections in these groups. And if you were going to do that, we needed to embark on a whole process of engaging communities to be part of understanding their context and finding their solutions investing in community-driven models, having data that mattered to communities, and of course, ensuring that there were resources that were able to give to some of the most disadvantaged parts of the country. So that was part of the strategy we put in place at that time. We worked with Congress, had much more investment into the program than we had before, developing programs and tackling some of the stigma discrimination issues uh, throughout the course of my time in the US. And then antiretrovirals came along. Uh, yes, indeed. And of course, with the antiretrovirals, there were differential access according to different racial and ethnic groups and people living in poor areas had poor access to services and therefore lower uptake of those antiretrovirals. So we worked very hard to ensure that there was equity in access. And we also did work while I was in the US on pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV. That's taking a tablet that protects you from getting HIV. And much of the research was started with my team in the US. We were able to develop programs that has resulted in significant reductions now in HIV transmission in the US and here in the UK, as well as we've ruled the pro program out. And that I think is going to be one of the legacies of the work that we've been doing on HIV over the past 20 years. And all of this came to a recognition that not only were you the man who had been right at the center of these solutions, but the president at the time, President Obama, wanted you to come to the White House to accord you and reward you. Yes, I, I think that's, you know, I, there are many moments in, in the career and, and in time seems to move so fast, but this is one of those moments that moves particularly slowly um, because I had the privilege of working with uh, President Obama's uh, HIV AIDS uh, administrator, um, with the administrator and with senior leaders in the health system, we developed the first AIDS strategy for the US. Uh, and we also were able to uh, bring back to the US the International AIDS Conference, which hadn't been in the country for many years uh, in Washington, DC. And I met President Obama just before leaving to return to the UK. And he had a chance to thank me personally for my service to the American people. Um, and, you know, just to wish me all the best. But it was that recognition of the work that we were able to do while in the US and uh, the, the, the resetting HIV in the US and creating a good foundation for what is subsequently achieved 
that I think the Obama administration was especially happy about. And of course, it was fantastic to meet one of my idols in person as well. Wonderful. Well, your third piece of music is Marvin Gaye's Mercy, Mercy Me. It's, Why? Yeah, so, you know, this theme, I, I, you know, I must say to listeners that I do listen to contemporary music and <laughs> I you know, have a very wide repertoire. But I'm emerging from this pandemic more reflective about our place in this world, the humility of understanding that, you know, microbes that we live with every day can cause such damage. And when you think of the forest fires in Greece and the US, when you think of the refugee crisis in Afghanistan, when you think of the disruption happening at this time, this song, Mercy, Mercy Me, just says, actually, we need to take stock of what's going on around us. We need to be politically active. We need to be socially, have social justice because change is within our grasp. And this song speaks to this reflection of our state of being and our responsibilities for, for doing better. So then you came back to the UK around 2012 and became part of the new public Health England, do you slip straight in? <laughs> um, well, they were creating the uh, new public health agency. In my 10 years in the US, I maintained really good relationships uh, with partners here in the UK. I was always being invited to give lectures, to teach, um, to reflect on my experiences and my work in the US. So I remained a known entity in the U UK public health fraternity. And when the national, the new Public Health England was being created, uh, a number of colleagues said, Kevin, we would love you to return to do this. And this provided an opportunity for me after nearly 20 years of working in HIV to go back to general health and well-being, to begin to think about health promotion thinking about health inequalities in a new and broader way and to really develop my love for and the learning that I had in 10 years in the US and to bring some of that expertise to our work in the UK. So it was a perfect timing to come back home and I haven't missed, uh, regretted it. I mean, London's home and I, I love being here. But the work that we have also done over the past uh, nine years in Public Health England, whether it's you know, pushing forward on tackling childhood obesity or really thinking about mental health and well-being and developing programs for that, straight through to the work that we're doing on screening for cancer and screening and promoting immunizations, all of these things. I was uh, able to lead and to work with colleagues in PHE. And that has been a fantastic journey over the past uh, seven years. You, you've always had a, a deep study of anthropology and how has that then affected how you've taken forward your career, your thinking about solutions? Yeah, yeah that's a great question. And, and as an epidemiologist, people often think that we're completely left-brained, right? So very analytical, very process-driven, um, and very, you know, focus on the numbers and focus on the p-values, as we say. Um, but I've learned in part because of my work in HIV and the career that I've had, that the power of narrative, the power of a person's story, the power of understanding context for your data enables you to make better decisions in policy and it enables you to develop programs. You can look at a spreadsheet and you can come to many conclusions, but unless you understand why this is happening 
and how you can work with those communities to improve it, then you will never be able, I think, to develop effective programs. And that's why the sociological, socio-anthropological work that I've done in parallel with the epidemiological work has been a, a unique part of my career and my practice, but one that I think is so important to give you the richness uh, in what you're doing and, and, and what you're able to achieve. And so in, in some ways, in plain people's language, that's prevent a lot of those preventative medicine. You've taken that approach where people need to know how to manage the reality of their health. And just talk to us a little bit about the sugar tax. Yes, well, you know, the sugar levy, uh, which is uh, an innovative program which was introduced by the government uh, a few years ago, recognized one of the big problem public health problems that we had, which was growing levels of obesity in our country and growing levels of childhood obesity. And when we looked at the dietary consumption of Britons, we eat significantly more sugar in our diet than almost any other European country. And that excess calories from sugars, whether it's sweetened sodas, cakes and treats uh, and so forth, add to the excess weight that we have, which then results in early death and a range of complications, including cancer as well. So a way of tackling the high levels of sugar that we're taking in is to not only ask people to change their diet, but to change the way food is prepared and formulated by retailers and manufacturers to take sugar out while maintaining the flavor so that you are consuming less sugar and therefore reducing um, uh, the likelihood of obesity and and unhealthy weight. And the levy itself was an amazing journey of starting with the evidence, working with politicians and working with communities and partners, getting a movement for change in place, leading to eventual policy change, which included working with manufacturers and retailers as well. And we will see that this is one of the most powerful two things that we've done in the past decade to really help to change the eating habits and the health and well-being of our populations. And it has been successful as well. Are there are there resistor pockets that still need a lot of hard work to understand? Yes, there are. And, you know, for all of these changes when it comes to maintaining healthier weight, so whether it's reducing your alcohol consumption or stop having as much salt uh, as we would like, you know, again, coming from the Caribbean, you always put a little salt on the food even before you taste it. Um, Reducing sugar in your diet. All of these require change at an individual level. And sometimes that change is hard, right? Because if you don't have the money, if you're not aware of the issues, and if you're not understanding the importance of diet, then you won't make those changes. Alternatively, you can work with manufacturers and policy to change the food environment and context, not having as many fast food uh, stores on the high street, working with restaurants to prepare healthier calorie monitored meals, All of those are important. So that change, whether individually or in business or in policymakers, is always difficult because there's always a risk that people will be unhappy, that you'll be accused of being part of the nanny state, or that people will want to see early returns, which are often not possible for some of these major interventions. So that resistance is there, but that's what we do in public health, being able to articulate the need, the evidence, and develop programs that work. So with all of this going on, COVID going on, the public health 
uh, crisis generally about well-being going on. We've also had the killing of George Floyd and the awareness of strong racial disparities. Just give it, give us very briefly your, what, what did all this feel for you like in the last year? You know, it's been, it's been, it's been challenging. Um, you know, I've had the privilege of being the public health director for what I think is one of the greatest cities in the world. But London has been hard hit both in wave one and then in wave two, which we had in January, uh, February of 2021. And as we move into wave three and subsequent waves, we've seen a disproportionate impact of COVID on people who are of Black, Asian, and minority ethnic backgrounds. Uh, we've seen a disproportionate burden on the more deprived parts of our communities. And we've seen this disproportionate burden play out, especially for people who have multiple long-term conditions, who have poor health, who are much more likely to have severe disease and die. And these early signals of disparity we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, and I was privileged to be asked by the Secretary of State at that time to lead a review on inequalities. And that really confirmed the depth and scale of the inequalities that COVID was uncovering. Now, you know, we're still in the pandemic, things continue to evolve, but I can look back on this year and we can see all the different programs that have been established as a result of this work. The change in government's focus to really focus on inequalities and the foundation that this is setting. So as we emerge from the pandemic, we'll be thinking about equity, supporting communities, engaging people for whom mistrust was a key part of their poor response to the pandemic. These are things that we've learned that we must take forward. So one of the things we ask everyone on these, uh, these podcasts to do is to make a future pledge. So what would yours be? So I have come to the realization that a part of my role is to, to, um, to lead to learn and to live life with love. And so as I think about the future, I want to continue to be aligned to that life mission. I've been privileged in doing a lot of fantastic and impactful work in many different parts of the world. I'm committed now to both passing that baton on to create that next generation of leaders. But I'm also committed to being that voice of conscience, being that voice of challenge, being that voice of advocacy for equity, moving forwards. And that will be my pledge. Well, sadly, that's all we've had time for today. And thank you so much. We could sit and literally talk for hours and hours. Thank you, Kevin Fenton, for joining me today, opening up about your very fascinating life and your remarkable relationships and your future aspirations. I know this episode will stay with us for a very long time. Please join us next time on the BBI's You're On Mute, where we hear from another icon, a business leader or a famous personality. Until then, please subscribe review, leave your feedback wherever you get your podcast from. If you're a leader and would like to share your journey and your opinion on business, social justice and a fair society, please contact us at podcast at blackbusinessinstitute.com. Until next time, goodbye.
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.